0: Uh, it is a true delight once again to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning. I invite you to turn with me to Esther chapter 5. We're continuing our series there. Esther chapter 5 beginning with verse 1. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is a, uh, a little bit longer of a passage <clears throat> than I normally do for this series because um, we're going to go from chapter 5 verse 1 all the way almost to the end of chapter 6. And so if you need to sit at any point, go ahead and do that. Esther chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Hear now the word of God. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to her, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast, that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow... I will do as the king said. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all of the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared, and tomorrow I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows, 50 cubits high, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city. Proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse And he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, Is of the Jewish people, and you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, and may he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, we we thank you for all of your word this morning, and we think now especially of the book of Esther, Lord. We pray that uh, you would bless our time together in this word, and that it would be preached faithfully and clearly. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would work through your word today to accomplish what you want to do. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I, uh, I assume many of you have probably heard of the, uh, I don't know if it's an expression or a phrase or what to call it. But you've probably heard the truism before that right? pride goes before a fall. Right? You've heard that before. Pride goes before a fall. We have a lot of just sort of, you know, truisms like that. These sort of short, clever statements that we often repeat to each other all the time. You know, uh, financial guys like to say things like, a penny saved is a penny earned. Right? Or uh, I've heard one before. Uh, Nothing is sure in this life except death and taxes. Right, We've got these, these little truisms we like to say, and uh, it's pretty true oftentimes, you know? Um, most of the truisms that we have in modern English that we just use all the time, like a penny saved is a penny earned or about the death and taxes thing, most of those statements were actually coined by Benjamin Franklin or Mark Twain. So if you're repeating those statements, a lot of them are, are from those guys, uh, just some really influential, clever writers and authors. Uh, but the statement... Pride goes before a fall. Now, Benjamin Franklin didn't come up with that one. Uh, nor did Mark Twain, nor did Charles Dickens, nor did any other great writer. Now, actually, there was a, a much greater writer who came up with that phrase, and we can actually attribute it to Solomon. Because pride goes before a fall is actually based on Proverbs sixteen eighteen, which says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And let me tell you something, if you're going to go anywhere in Scripture to find a kind of historical embodiment of Solomon's wisdom right there, that pride goes before destruction, I can think of few examples or few accounts to point to that would be better than Esther chapter 5 and 6. Because it's here in our passage, and the reason why I wanted to sort of tie these two chapters together is because... Here we have a great example of that wisdom of Solomon being demonstrated here in a real person, in a powerful person, and his name is Haman. It's in this passage here that we see so clearly that pride goes before destruction. And we can see that in uh, basically three ways here. We could see that pride begins in Haman... We can see that Haman's pride is diminished at the end of chapter 5, and then we see in chapter 6 that his pride is destroyed. Pride leads to destruction. And indeed, we see not only that Haman's pride gets destroyed, but we see that his pride is prophesied by his wife and his wise men to lead ultimately to his final fall, to his final destruction. Okay, so let's take a look at our, our passage today, pride begun, where we see Haman's pride and sort of the seeds being planted and being sprouted and how he is sort of beginning to bolster himself here. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 5, right, you remember that comes right on the heels of the end of chapter 4, all right, rocket science there, but at the very end of chapter 4, we had Esther and Mordecai fasting, and they're fasting because Mordecai had come to Esther at the end of the chapter, and he had said, Esther, listen, all of the Jews are going to die. All of our people. Haman has concocted this plan. He's bribed the king with trillions of dollars. And he has enacted this plan to kill all the Jews. And the only way that we can save the people here is if you come out and admit who you are to the king. And you come and intercede on behalf of the people. And you stand between them and the judgment and you appeal to them. Right? We talked about how Esther's kind of a, a type of Christ last time we were looking at, uh, at that passage. But Esther now in chapter 5, she comes before the king. Right? And uh, one of the things I think is sort of interesting is that, you know, in, in, our, in the, the canonical book of Esther, that is the Esther that we have in our Bibles, right? We just have this movement from Esther and Mordecai fasting, and then immediately she goes into the king. And uh, I've been debating about whether or not I wanted to bring this up, but I think that uh, in today's message, it makes some sense. It helps us understand the passage a little bit. Um, If you've ever been familiar with uh, the Roman Catholic Bible, you may know that in the Roman Catholic Bible, there are some extra books in there. Uh, Their Bible is actually a little bit bigger than ours uh, because they've got some extra things like first and second Maccabees, Tobit and, and Judith and these different what we call deuterocanonical books, or sometimes we call them apocrypha. Uh, they're, they're extra books that the Roman Catholic Church added right around the time of the Reformation. And honestly, from our perspective, they added those books because they wanted to substantiate some of their doctrinal claims against Martin Luther and the rest of the reformers. So there was um, some adding to scripture going on there. But in the apocrypha, in these extra books that that the Roman Catholics added to their Bible, there's actually not only extra books, but there are additions to certain books. And one of those books that actually has additions is Esther. Now, the additions in the Catholic Bible are not scriptural. Right? They're not scripture. They're not in the original Hebrew manuscripts. They're actually, the additions are actually written in Greek, and they're much later. Okay? But I think the additions are interesting because between chapter 4 and 5 here, the additions insert the prayers of Mordecai and Esther when they were uh, fasting to prepare for Esther to go before the king. And what's fascinating is that in these prayers of Mordecai and Esther, Mordecai uh, very clearly is against the whole idea of pride. He's constantly saying things like, I'm not prideful. I was not uh, prideful when I refused to bow down to Haman, I did it out of faithfulness to God. He's just kind of repeating these things all the time. And then for Esther's prayer, she also repeats the theme of pride. And she's saying she's no longer prideful of her position as queen, and she's willing now to give it up if it means saving her people. She's gonna come out as a Jew. Because you remember, Esther kind of had a rocky start in this book, right? She, I mean, she was kind of you know, sleeping with her boss to get the job. She wasn't the, the most ideal of people. And yet now she's going through what my literature professor in college would call a Bildungsroman, which is a character change. She's changing throughout the book. Or formerly, she was like the world. Now in her prayer, even in the Apocrypha, she says, you know, we Israelites, we used to worship the pagan gods of Persia. And now look what that has gotten upon us what God has brought. He's brought this judgment on us because we've assimilated into Persian culture. Now I'm not willing anymore to let my pride stand in the way of coming and doing the right thing. So Esther's changing here. And the reason why I bring all of this up is just because that, what those additions to Esther show us is that early interpreters of this book understood chapters five and six to be all about Haman's pride. Because notice how Mordecai and Esther, as they show up and they say, we're not prideful. We're going to do the right thing now. Haman is exactly the opposite. It's establishing a clear distinction between them, between the good guys and the bad guys here, if you will. And so Esther now, standing up in courage, comes before the king, which was illegal, under punishment of death. And yet she comes, she does it anyway. And the king holds out the scepter to her. And then he says, Esther, what do you want? I'll give it to you. And interestingly, what she does in our text here is she says, I want you and Haman to come to a feast, just the two of you. I'm going to prepare a feast. We're going to eat. We're going to drink some good wine. And then I'll ask you what I want. So they come to the feast, just Haman and the king. And then the same thing happens. They eat, they drink. What do you want, Esther? Eh, Why don't you come to another feast? And uh, then we'll eat and drink again. And then I will tell you what I want. Uh, I've always kind of wondered, you know, what what Esther was thinking here, why why she wanted uh, to sort of delay her question here. And uh, I don't think it's because she was afraid. I don't think she was afraid. I think rather what's happening here is that Esther has a profound and a quite biblically enriched theology of feasting, if you will. You know, in the Old Testament, if you read the Psalms, if you read, you know, especially the poetry, but even if you read the historical books, you see there's a pretty rich theology in the Old Testament of eating together, and how that is not only symbolic of strong relationships, but it actually fosters strong relationships. And drinking together fosters strong relationships. I mean, there's something about that. And if you want to hear more about that, I don't want to go into it too much here because I don't have time, but if you want to hear more about that, I'm actually going to, Be dealing with that some in our Sunday school series on the sacraments. Because this theology of feasting feeds into the Lord's Supper a little bit. But uh, the reason why Esther is doing this is because she wants, not in a a superficial way, but in a real genuine way, to build a strong relationship with the king here. She wants to open his heart by feeding him well. You know the old saying, uh, maybe another truism that Franklin invented was uh, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Maybe there's some of that going on here too, but I think it's more than that. She wants to establish a strong relationship with this king. And she wants Haman there too, so they can lower the defenses and they can make this stuff happen. And so that's what she does. Now in verse 9, we see the seeds of Haman's pride beginning. Verse 9, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. And you can imagine why Haman would be super happy right now, right? He's skipping down the sidewalk on his way to his massive house with his big yard and his all of his riches and servants and everything, and he's just the happiest guy in the world because he just had lunch with the president and the first lady at the White House. He's on top of the world. And he's been invited to come again. Just him and the president and the first lady. And he is on top of the world. His pride is beginning. He's on an ego quest and it's getting fueled and he's happy until second half of verse nine. We see Haman's pride beginning to be diminished. So he came with joy and gladness of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Now you would think, oh, good grief, man. You just, you're on top of the world, humanly speaking. You've got all the reason in the world to be prideful. Who cares what the one guy over there is not doing? Yeah, he won't bow down to you. He won't legitimize your authority. Okay, fine, you're being kind of spoiled. But Haman here, remember, there's more going on in the background here than just Haman and his ego quest, right? Because Haman sees himself in this book as being the one who's going to triumph over the Jewish people. You remember from a few uh, weeks ago when we were looking at some earlier chapters of Esther, Haman and Mordecai are locked not just in a battle between the two of them, but their battle is a spiritual battle that stretches all the way back to Haman's descendants and Mordecai's descendants. The Israelites were supposed to destroy Haman's descendants, the Amalekites, in the land of Canaan. King Saul refused to do it. And now Haman is the living embodiment of Israel's disobedience. And Haman sees himself as the one who's now finally going to triumph over God's people. I'm going to wipe them out. That's why he's so quick and so passionate and putting all of his money into this edict to destroy the Jews. And he sees Mordecai as sort of like the chief representative of the people of the Jews. And so when Haman, as he's got all of this pride, and he's, he's at the White House, and he's doing all of this stuff, he's so happy and glad, but then he sees, oh, that's my one failure, is I cannot beat these people. And so in an effort to foster his pride, it just motivates him to want to destroy them even more. So he goes home, and his wife and his servants say, hey, why don't you build a gallows? You can hang this guy. Get it done a little bit early. You know, no sense waiting until the edict comes into place and all of them get destroyed anyway. You got to kill Mordecai first if he's bothering you this much. So let's build a giant gallows. And we're told the gallows is 50 feet high, or sorry, not 50 feet, 50 cubits high, and uh, that translates today to about 100 feet tall. Okay, that's a pretty significant gallows to hang people on. You know, if you watch the uh, BBC or just you know old, uh, not old, but like TV shows about 17th century world or something, their gallows are like 15 feet high, maybe maybe 20, but this is 100 feet. This would stretch high above the walls around Haman's house. He wanted this to be a public spectacle. Everyone would see, I beat the Jews. I won this centuries and century-long battle between my descendants and his. I destroyed the people of God. That's why Haman's called the enemy of the Jews in this book multiple times. He's essentially the Old Testament antichrist, if you want a strong turn. So he builds this giant gallows and in chapter 6 now, Haman shows up at the king's court, and he wants to talk to the king about this. And notice, the king, this, this is taking place in the middle of the night, right, at the beginning of chapter 6. The king can't sleep. Uh, he wants the uh, history of his life recorded or read to him or something. And so he is reading about all this stuff or hearing it read, and he discovers that Mordecai saved his life once. You remember that? That was the end of chapter 2. Mordecai saved his life. Hey, servant, did anybody do anything for this guy? Nope, we haven't done anything. And so then the king wants some advice. How are we going to honor him? And Haman just so happens to be out in the king's court. Now remember, this is during the middle of the night. Haman just finished building his gallows, or at least it's being built by his servants, and he cannot wait to get to the king as soon as possible, even if it's three in the morning. And he has to talk to the king right now about killing Mordecai. This is desperate. You could smell desperate right here. And the king says to Haman, how can I honor someone whom I want to honor? Here comes Haman creeping toward destruction here. In his pride, in his self-centeredness, in his ego trip, he just assumes without even thinking, "Ah, who would the king want to honor more than me? There's his downfall right there. Because then he suggests: oh, we're gonna have him wear the king's clothes and ride around on the king's horse and wear the king's crown, and an honored guy is gonna walk around telling everyone, this guy is awesome, this guy is awesome, this guy is awesome. King loves him, the king loves him, the king loves him. And the king then takes out a verbal knife without even realizing it. The king's sort of oblivious here. But the king takes out a verbal knife and shoves it in Haman's stomach and says, do it to Mordecai. And then he twists it a little bit when he says, The Jew. Do this to Mordecai, the Jew. You can just imagine the color fading out of Haman's face here. If Haman, I mean, theoretically speaking, if Haman had just waited, Mordecai would be taken out with the rest of the Jews when the edict goes into effect. But Haman, in his pride, is so wanting Mordecai dead, that he just can't wait. And he gets himself into trouble here. Pride goes before destruction. And so Haman does this, parades Mordecai around the streets, the same streets that Mordecai was in sackcloth and ashes last time we looked at this passage. He parades around Mordecai as the king's favorite guy. Then he goes home, head covered, mourning He tells his servants and his wife everything that happens. And at the very end of chapter 6, the very end of our text here, you see his wife and his wise men utter a kind of prophecy. Maybe not in the strictest sense, but these are at least wise words. These are very carefully thought words. His wise men and his wife said to him, this is verse 13, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him." In the Hebrew um, in Hebrew, if you want to emphasize a verb, you just repeat the verb basically. So you've got two verbs identical to each other, essentially. And so in, in the English here where it says, you, uh, "He will surely or you will surely fall before him." In the Hebrew, it basically says, "You will not overcome him, but you will fall, you will fall." Before him. You can't emphasize anything more than that. Zerish and the wise men know for, with certainty that this, is a, almost, that this, this uh, event in Haman's life, where his pride is destroyed, is a precursor. It is sort of a prejudgment because this prejudgment is going to lead to his ultimate judgment. You will fall, you will fall before Mordecai if he is of the Jews you're not going to win this spiritual battle. The seed of the serpent will not overcome the seed of the woman. That's what his own wife is saying to him at this point. And so Haman's pride not only leads to the destruction of his pride, but it's ultimately going to lead to his ultimate destruction. And we're going to see that in future weeks. But just as we... Think about this passage in terms of you know what does it mean for us. It can seem somewhat. I think it can seem somewhat trivial uh, to just stand up here and say you know the message of this passage is is don't be prideful. And it seems trivial, not because it's not true, because this is a great illustration of Proverbs' warning: pride leads to destruction. But the reason I say I think sometimes it feels trivial is because we've all probably heard 150 sermons on pride. <laughs> we hear it all the time. Don't be prideful. Right? Be humble. Be humble like Jesus. And it, it, we just hear this all, all the time. And sometimes I think we can tend to think that maybe we've mastered this subject. Maybe I'm overstepping. Maybe that's not how you are. Maybe you really have mastered pride and you're much more humble than I am. But I, I certainly... Uh, certainly hits home, because I think that too often I'm far more like Haman than I'd like to admit. And I suspect that maybe if you look at your life, you might see that too, that we're a lot less like Esther and Mordecai in this passage and and a whole lot more like the enemy of the Jews. Pride can show up in our lives in so many ways, it can show up boldly where people literally say, I am prideful and it doesn't matter what you say, I'm right on everything. There are certainly people like that and we can probably name some of them or we at least know some of them. We know they're out there. But that's not usually the way pride shows up with us, especially as Christians because we hear so much about pride. Uh, Pride then becomes something that's more under the table, becomes something much more subtle. We can be like Haman in a subtle way. If we constantly worry about the way that other people look at us. And there's a good way to do that, right? If you're in ministry or if you're in a political position or if you're a business executive or really if you're a parent, you can care about what other people think of you. And there's a good aspect of that because you care about your Christian witness. You care about being a reputable person. But there are other times when, you know, we just get obsessed about it because we want to bolster ourselves up in other people's images, We want them to look at us a certain way. We want them to think that we're smart. We want them to think that we're talented. We want them to think this. We want them to think that. We want them to think our kids are perfect. We want them to think you fill in the blank. Pride can show up in the fact that we run our lives solo without any friends. We don't want anyone into our heart. We don't have any good, true friends that we can share stuff with. We like flying solo. That can be a manifestation of pride, it could be bragging, it could be assuming that you've mastered a subject and you're unwilling to listen to a teacher or a sermon or something. Maybe that can show up here if you think you've mastered the subject of pride. Here I'm trying to talk about pride from the scriptures. Maybe that's a manifestation of pride there too. We're not willing to listen. Maybe it's because you never ask for help or you disregard advice or we're unwilling to submit to genuine authority. Or maybe it's that we're justifying sin. Folks, there is a lot of ways that pride can show up in our lives. And if any of these things resonated with you, or if you fill in the blank with other things that resonate with you, it ought to be convicting. When the law of God is presented to us, we are convicted if we've understood it. Because we can't measure up to the glory of God. Every single one of us has fallen short. We far more than we would like to admit. You and me are far more like Haman than we are like Jesus. And what I think is amazing is that when Jesus himself came to this earth to accomplish our salvation, he didn't come in a prideful flurry, he didn't come bragging about his audiences with God in the heavenly White House. Jesus didn't come to bolster himself up, but rather the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that when Jesus came, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not count equality with God a thing to be prideful of, a thing to, to just... Shoving people's faces, but rather, we're told, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and coming in human form. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most humiliating of all deaths in the Roman world. (coughs) Folks, that's our Jesus the perfect example of humility, the one who veiled his own divine glory and submitted himself to all the limitations of humanness in his human nature. He suffered for us. He died for us. He lived the perfect, prideless life that we were supposed to live. And then he died for us. See, when we are confronted with our failures, when we're confronted with, with the pridefulness in our life that we don't like to admit sometimes. You know where we need to turn is we don't turn inward and say, well, I just gotta do better. I just gotta do better. Well, there's a place for that. But the place for that comes after we first turn to Christ. First we turn to Christ and we find forgiveness in him. We find forgiveness in the gospel because it is Christ who lived that perfect, prideless life that we could not and that we cannot And it is through faith in him that we find the sweet forgiveness of our sins and that sweet gift of the righteousness of God imputed to us, received by faith alone. It's to Christ that we turn. Let's pray. Oh God, we... um, God, we find in scripture that uh, there are... So many things that we fall short of. Lord, we, um, we think especially today of pride, Lord. It's a subtle, a subtle sin. One that we can quite easily hide. We can mask it in so many ways. But God, we pray that you would reveal in our hearts those places where we, we in our lives just don't correspond to your word. But oh God, as, as you do that, Lord, we pray that you would work in us through your spirit to turn us toward Christ, turn us toward our Savior, not toward ourselves. If we turn toward ourselves and just try to do better, we're just going to fail. We're just going to go down a long, wide road that leads to destruction. Oh, God, turn us toward Christ today. Turn us toward that mediator between God and man, that man, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to find forgiveness in him and, and then send your spirit to work in us deeper love for you and obedience to your word oh god we pray that the gospel would penetrate us and that it would make us new and that it would change us here even this morning we pray all of these things in the holy and the precious name of jesus amen our hymn of uh, response this morning is number 119 i sing the almighty power of God, number 119. Please stand as we sing together.